Hi, welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and informative. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there's a question and answer period. I end the session with a quick note of optimism from each speaker. Last week, I made a shout out to my friend Larry Klein, who was in the hospital with COVID-19. He passed away two days ago. This is my first close friend who has died during the pandemic. I wish my condolences to his family and loved ones. Our first speaker today is Richard Porter, who is a partner with the law firm of Kirkland & Ellis, and he's also very active in Republican politics. Richard will be speaking about what to do about the insolvency of states like my home state of Illinois. To paraphrase from Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises, when asked how did you go bankrupt, the answer was two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Illinois is going bust in a similar manner, and suddenly is becoming our new reality. Illinois is the highest tax burden of any state due to its high property and sales taxes, yet even pre-COVID, the state was heading towards insolvency. Now with COVID, the state's finances are much more problematic. Taxpayers are moving out of state, and the death spiral has begun. The critical driving force is the unfunded pension liabilities that benefit current and retired state and local employees. The Illinois Constitution does not allow benefits to be diminished or impaired, so there appears to be no way out. In a previous call, David Skeel recommended a new bankruptcy code for the states that would allow for organized restructurings of its claims. Richard Porter will discuss Illinois' financial troubles and the likely legal strategies that the state will employ to minimize its pension and debt liabilities. Our next speaker is Susan Saltstein, who is a partner at Skadden Arps, where she's co-deputy of Skadden's global securities litigation practice. Susan was my wife Julie's college roommate and has been her best friend for the past 35 years. Susan's going to talk about shareholder litigation. Management is in a bind. We have never had such uncertain economic conditions. Whenever management makes a forward-looking statement, it will likely be wrong and by a large margin. This sort of guidance can result in litigation, but to what end? Susan will give recommendations for management and public policy suggestions. Howard Ellen is a partner at Skadden Arps as well, who focuses on mergers and acquisitions. Many acquisitions announced pre-COVID are now uneconomic, and buyers are desperate to terminate these agreements under the material adverse change clause. Howard will discuss these contractual disagreements and the current state of play in the M&A market. Our next speaker is Hunter Kay, who is an equity analyst with Wolf Research, covering the airline and aerospace and defense companies. The airlines have been one of the hardest-hit industries with an unprecedented decline in air travel. I've asked Hunter to speak about the financial impact on the airlines, their ultimate survival, and whether the current stock prices properly reflect the expected economic reality. Up next is Patrick Allett, who is a professor of history at Emory University. I first met Patrick on thegreatcourses.com. I've listened to five of Patrick's classes, including America's Religious History, the American West, and the Art of Teaching. I love Patrick's sense of humor and his wide-ranging historical perspective. Patrick has spoken to my book club twice about his books on conservative ideas, as well as I'm the Teacher, You're the Student, about a year in his university classroom. Today, I've asked Patrick to tell us about the beginnings of the modern public health system in Victorian England. Our final speaker is Michael Kahana, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. I met Michael at a book club series that I held at Penn a few years ago. I was amazed by his work in neuroscience to help patients with brain injuries improve their memory. 
At the beginning of this year, I became a venture capital investor in a technology company. Michael is interested in memory. I've asked Michael to talk about what we will remember about this COVID period in the short and long run. The Chatham House rule applies for this discussion, and the call is being recorded. A number of listeners over the past few weeks have been sending me requests to include their friends and family on the invitation list for what happens next. We've added 1,000 new contacts this month. Please use the link that I sent you to automatically add your friends to the permanent list. Next week, my co-host Rick Banks, who is a Stanford law professor, will join us again. This time, the topic will be the intersection of race and policing, as well as race and education. Okay, it's game time. Richard Porter is our first speaker. Our states are insolvent. What happens next? Go ahead, Richard. Thanks, Larry. This is Richard Porter. So COVID-19 has been severe for many who catch it, and it's downright dangerous for people with other conditions. So too, COVID-19 has been severe for the finances of many states. But as a general matter, states started 2020 with record financial reserves, and the median state had the financial wherewithal to operate for 28 days without any revenue whatsoever. COVID-19 is, however, deadly for the finances of states with pre-existing financial problems. States such as Connecticut and New Jersey with pre-existing conditions like shrinking populations due to excessive taxes and debts, sclerotic bureaucracies, and structural budget imbalances are most at risk from COVID-19. And no state is more at risk from COVID-19 than Illinois. It has the lowest credit ratings, highest taxes, highest unfunded pension debt, smallest rainy day fund, we had a 10-minute rainy day fund, fastest shrinking population, and deep structural budget deficits. Illinois' governor and senators have taken the lead in seeking federal assistance for states and municipalities because of these pre-existing conditions. Illinois needs federal help more because the the COVID-19 crisis exacerbates its pre-existing insolvency. Some say states are never really insolvent. All you have to do is increase taxes, perhaps have the rich pay more, have them pay their fair share. But this is not true. We live in a federal republic, and people are free to move, and they do. A state is pragmatically insolvent when it can't raise taxes without losing more population. Our freedom to choose to live in other states that are governed less expensively is a constraint in what any one state can do to its residents. States compete for residents, investment, and growth. A state like Illinois that's already shrinking, our population is down 11% since 2001, will only shrink faster if it raises taxes even more. And the revenue the state raises from higher taxes will be swamped by the deadweight loss in property values as people leave the state. By one estimate, residents of suburban Cook County alone lost $250 billion in property values over just the last few years due to the loss in demand and the increase in supply from from the Illinois exodus. So raising taxes only exacerbates existing insolvency. A federal financial bailout is another possibility and appears to be the option that some favor. And, of course, the federal government offered $350 billion to small businesses in the Paycheck Protection Plan in order to pay the wages of small business employees during the crisis. Illinois would need just a little bit less than that for its own pension protection plan to ensure that every government worker in Illinois gets the pensions our politicians promised. 
including the 20,000 people with annual pensions in excess of $100,000 who get a 3% annual increase every year for life and who pay no state income taxes. States that offer more modest pension plans to their employees or that actually funded their pension plans are not likely to support this Illinois Pension Protection Plan. Plus, states with large pension deficits will also want to be bailed out, which would cost trillions in the aggregate. So what Illinois and some other financially sick states really need more than federal dollars is federal legal help. We need the federal government to preempt our state constitution. Many are surprised to learn it's illegal in Illinois for the legislature to reform state and municipal pensions. The state legislature may cut services to the people or increase taxes on the people, but it may not decrease pension or retiree health benefits under our state constitution. This means Illinois' primary obligation has become providing government workers with lifetime income and health care. Illinois serves its people only to the extent resources remain thereafter. That sounds medieval, because it is. People who are obliged to pay but may not reduce or reform lifetime income previously granted to government workers are servants. The federal government has the power, indeed it has the duty, to fix this problem. Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution provides, quote, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government, close quote. In a republic, the people are sovereign, not servants. A republic is what Lincoln called government of, by, and for the people. The U.S. Constitution commands the federal government to guarantee that the people always control the pay and the benefits of those who govern the state. Congress has the power under the Commerce Clause and the Bankruptcy Clause to preempt state law, including state constitution. So unless the federal government prefers to pay Illinois' pensions, it must empower the people to reform excessive pensions. For example, the federal government could preempt Illinois' constitution to eliminate the prohibition on pension reform with a statute such as this. If and to the extent a state's legislature and governor determine that it's necessary or proper to modify the terms of any pension or other pay or benefit plan for the state to perform its supreme obligation to serve the people, the United States hereby grants and delegates to the legislature the power and the authority to change any pay, pension, or benefit plans for government employees. Illinois needs Uncle Sam to fix its problem. Illinois was already failing before COVID-19, and now our state's condition is even more critical. We need help to make Illinois healthy again, so either give our people the power to fix the pensions or pay the pensions for us. Thanks. I look forward to your questions later in the call. Perfect, Richard. Questions will come back in a minute. Okay, our next speaker is Susan Saltstein. Uh, she's a partner at Goldman Sachs and co-deputy of their global securities litigation practice. Susan's going to talk about shareholder litigation. Go ahead, Susan. Thanks, Larry. Um, Scad Norps, but, um, you know, Goldman Sachs is a, is a great name, too. Um, and, and appreciate the opportunity, Larry. So, so, Larry, it's 1929, and the stock market crash has just absolutely decimated the finances of the newly investing American public who following World War I had poured about $50 billion of their hard-earned dollars into the stock market. And between 1929 and 1933, that American public stood by and watched as the stock market declined 89%. As a reaction of what was perceived as the reason for that decline, which was rampant fraud in the sale of securities by companies to a then unsuspecting public, 
Recently elected President Roosevelt tapped his old friend Felix Frankfurter to draft legislation that would regulate on a national scale the sale of securities. And what emerged from those efforts was the Securities Act of 1933, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, and the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission. It was FDR's first go at national legislation, and the philosophy really behind those statutes was disclosure. So let's fast forward 87 years. And one phenomenon that's grown up around those two statutes and the SEC's regulations is a large-scale, well-funded, multi-billion dollar industry of shareholder litigation directed by lawyers purportedly, purportedly representing the interest of shareholders. And before COVID hit in 2019, there were 428 new security class actions that were filed in courts around the country, some in state court, most in federal court, that named corporations as defendants claiming that there were material misstatements or omissions in corporate public filings. About one in every 14 companies that's comprised the S&P 500 is subject to federal securities litigation, and that's just in 2019. Stanford Security Class Action Clearinghouse estimates that settlements in these cases have totaled over $103 trillion since 1996. And with those filings come very large attorney's fees, typically 30% or so of the total recovery. The security class actions that are brought today bear very little resemblance to the type of actions that were brought post-FDR era. Today, the market has shifted, dominated by event-driven litigation. So if there's an oil spill in the Gulf, a fire from a gas leak, a hacker that disables a company's computer system and a stock price decline, rest assured that there'll be some litigation to follow. And because there's never been a more impactful event for companies around the globe than the impact that corona has had on operations, board of directors and management are under, understandably jittery about offering guidance, about providing their, their views um, on the effect of corona on their business. And so some issuers have pulled their guidance, others have mod modified their guidance, and still others have, have left well enough alone. But whatever choices they make, there is uh, a concern that no matter what they say, how carefully they predict, the statistics bear out that they'll find themselves named in the caption of a complaint. And we're seeing that even with court closures around the country, which is really unprecedented, plaintiff's firms have become busy again filing class actions against, for example, cruise lines for allegedly using misleading sales tactics um, that, that purportedly led to mis misrepresentations in their financial statements against life sciences or healthcare companies for overstating claimed, claimed overstating the efficacy and readiness to go of COVID testing, against other companies for allegedly failing to disclose the anticipated effects of COVID on business operations. And the SEC, in my view, hasn't helped. In March of 2020, the SEC's Division of Corporate Finance issued disclosure guidance, and in that guidance propounded a long list of 37 questions concerning possible effects of COVID-19 that issuers should consider in preparing their disclosures. And I can just imagine my friends in the plaintiff's bar busily, busy, busily copying those questions and pasting them into their complaints. Some things that, that, that companies and management and boards ought to consider in the age of corona when issuing guidance. Uh, identify clearly any forward-looking statements which are protected by statute. Accompany disclosures with meaningful ca uh, cautionary language, not just the boilerplate. Offer opinions and make it clear that they are opinions 
and good, too, if they have a good faith basis and that they're reasonable. The Supreme Court, in its 2015 Omnicare decision, laid the groundwork for how companies can best take advantage of legal protection for opinions and statements of belief. And I think plaintiffs will have a hard time pleading and proving that the loss that they're, that they're experiencing now, the stock price declines, were caused by any supposed misstatement or omission, rather than as a result of the coronavirus's impact on stock price. So in 1933, we had legislative supposed solutions to an issue. There is an anticipated bill out there that's designed to curb corporate liability, but based on what I'm hearing from Washington, I have serious doubts that the bill will include anything about securities litigation. And the summary of the bill, which the Wall Street Journal reported on Friday, didn't mention anything about it either. I'm hearing that we may see that bill early this coming week. So barring legislative relief, we'll just have to continue to fight it out and win in court. Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Susan. Our next speaker, also from Skadden Arps, uh, is Howard Allen from the M&A department. Howard is going to tell us a little bit about uh, the material adverse change clause. Go ahead, Howard. Larry, thank you very much, and thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, Let me start with the state of the M&A market uh, to help level set us. In short, down uh, in most simple terms. First half activity down 52.7% from last year. If you look at any metrics, any market, you'll see it down everywhere. Two, I think, interesting things to note. It's down much more in the U.S. than the rest of the world, 71.9% compared to 52%. And big deals are down much more than smaller deals, 66% compared to 23%. Uh, Theme of this call has always been what happens next. So just some thoughts on where we are. Um, There's a view, an upbeat view, I'll call it, which M&A professionals like to have, that we're at the bottom or near the bottom, and that after the bottom, uh, you'll see a V-curve, much like in 2012 at the end of the Great Recession, uh, but on an accelerated basis. Why? Uh, Companies are reporting significant pent-up demand. Capital is cheap and plentiful. Balance sheets are strong. June activity was 43% higher than May, and weaker distressed companies are going to need to do something. However, stock prices are high. Seller expectations are slow to adjust. Regulatory barriers are appearing all over the world. Uh, Countries and jurisdictions blocking uh, acquisitions by outsiders, uh, and I expect more to come in that area. Political risk is high with respect to synergies, i.e. if you're taking away jobs, and of course we're in an election year. That's compounded by some things we've never seen before. Uh, Trust and partnership if you can't meet in order to put a deal together. How do you virtually diligence a plant when you can't visit it? And if projections and forecastings are almost impossible, how are you going to figure out what the future of some target business looks like? On the MAC clause and the COVID front, um, deals are set up and they're contracted in order to make it very hard for a buyer to get out. That being said, we're tracking about 30 deals where parties or buyers have asserted or successfully completed a right to terminate. Uh, This is changing every single day. Um, multiple categories that you're seeing, uh, deals that actually have been terminated where it's agreed. We think there are about 11 of those. Uh, Litigation active in respect to whether you have the right to terminate or not. There appear to be 13. Uh, Amended deal terms where the parties have renegotiated the price. There are at least six of those that are out there, uh, including uh, Forescout and potential litigated deals, the ones to come. Uh, We'll see what happens. 
that being said, when we add them up, we see about $100 billion in deals that are in these categories, but most deals are still getting done. Why are deals getting done, even as Larry points out that uh, many parties might have an interest in getting out? Uh, one, as I said, the deal is set up to limit those outs. Two, Delaware in particular has made it very difficult to find um, a, a MAC clause. They've actually only found one in the entire history of Delaware jurisprudence. That's because of the design of the MAC clause. It's set up so that uh, systemic risks are generally meant to be allocated to buyers and business risks are meant to be allocated to sellers provided that they are specific to that seller, materially adverse, durationally significant, uh, and sometimes when we look at the seller versus others in their space, um, are disproportionate to the impact of others. That makes it very hard ultimately to get out of a deal. However, there are some things that come up, right, that, um, that nonetheless create opportunities. Uh, one, the ordinary course covenant. This is an obligation, right, that the buyer and seller both have, excuse me, the seller, I should say more than the buyer, to operate their business in the ordinary course of business. One question is, well, how do you do that during this current crisis, given what's been required of companies? Second question is, what does ordinary course even mean? Is ordinary course what you would have done in normal circumstances, or is ordinary course what you need to do in the current circumstance? That question is unresolved. That question will need to be litigated, uh, and hence you have an opening that may afford people an opportunity to try to get out of deals. Much of the litigation we're seeing often focuses on the ordinary course covenant. Second thing is timing questions. If you reach a drop dead date, you may be able to get out of a deal whether or not there has been a material adverse change or a breach. When we see a deal being delayed, is that delay an actual delay or is somebody helping that delay along? In the regulatory sphere, this is often where you'll see this question raised, uh, and uh, people will debate what's happening in those areas. Uh, you should note that even before COVID, regulatory delays were slower. They were happening, they were taking longer. Second, providing information for your regulatory process is now, of course, much harder in order to get that organized. Third thing that comes up is an interplay with financing. Uh, if your deal was leveraged, if it had debt financing in particular, um, what happens if that debt financing commitment has expired or has terminated by its terms? It may be quite difficult to actually enforce an ability to close the deal in that circumstance, or it may be impractical if the money's simply not going to be there. And then, of course, there are a set of representations and warranties that could come into play, including reps about your relationships uh, with customers, suppliers, and the like that have to be brought down to closing, which as a result of COVID may no longer be the case. All those things at least lead to opportunities uh, and abilities for people to raise questions about whether or not they want to proceed with a deal, or perhaps if we want to be cynical, cynical about it, uh, figure out ways that ultimately lead to price renegotiations. There are a couple of practical things that we're starting to see and that are important for people to note. Uh, the courts do not like buyer's remorse. And buyers who jump to price renegotiations often do not do well. Buyers need to actively investigate problems, negotiate 
understand and not negotiate price, what's happening and why, and see if the problem can be fixed right before they're able to do something. They need to demonstrate they're trying to get their deal done and can't just dump to they'd rather jump to they'd rather do something else. They need to understand the specific terms of their particular MAE interim operating and representation and warranty clauses, and they need to focus on this question of disproportionate effects if they're going to try to maintain that their circumstance is different than other circumstances. As we face uh, sort of new deals that are coming into the marketplace, what you're starting to see, of course, is that people are getting very specific about who bears COVID risk and who doesn't what these inter-operating covenant obligations look like, whether you're seeing specific quantified thresholds or other clauses that allow people actually to take actions that are necessary in response to COVID, whether actually ordered or presumed in terms of what's happening for health and safety reasons. Uh, MA, the types of clauses that you see within an MAE being incorporated into the interim operating covenant and structures that create different types of deferred consideration uh, that allow us to see what's happening. In the end, this allocation of risk, even in deals that are now occurring, relates to the various leverage that the parties have and the strength or weakness of a buyer or seller in negotiating these provisions. Thank you, Larry. Thanks, Howard. Okay, uh, that ends the legal section of our call and we move on to business. Um, our next speaker is Hunter Kay. He is with Wolf Research covering the airlines. Go ahead, Hunter. Thank you, Larry. Um, I also cover the aerospace and defense industries if people have questions on that too, but I'm going to spend my time here talking about the airlines. Uh, this is obviously, you know, without a doubt, the biggest challenge in the history of the airline industry. De demand for air travel in the U.S. is down about 75% year-on-year right now, and that's actually a big improvement from mid-April, and it was down 95% from the prior year. Airlines cut their capacity output by about 85% immediately to respond to that in May and June. And about a month ago, it looked like air travel was getting modestly better. Airlines started restoring some of those capacity cuts for the July-August time frame, some more than others. And then a few weeks ago, bookings took a big step backwards, and now airlines are quickly trying to double back and recut that supply they had just added back in order to mitigate cash burn. Uh, I do not believe that the stock market is appropriately pricing in the future risk for the airlines. I see more downside uh, potential to most airline stocks we cover when I value the stocks and what I think the post-COVID-19 earnings power looks like for these businesses. Uh, the airlines that can survive will face massive debt obligations in the coming years. U.S. airlines alone have raised about $53 billion of debt since March. And on a pre-COVID basis, they had only about $100 billion in total, so to give you some perspective. Airlines have been raising this cash by mortgaging almost all the assets that they own. Um, the access to the capital has been aided by the Federal Reserve just pumping money into the bond markets. Even if airlines that, that do emerge are going to face a financial hangover for, for many, many years with high interest expense and heavy debt burdens. None of us were prepared for the impact of COVID, but airlines were particularly unprepared. Airlines are, are very cyclical businesses, and, and what I mean by that is that the condition of the overall economy is the primary factor for how these airline businesses perform. Over the last five years, demand for air travel has been very strong, growing at about 5% per year, which is much faster than the overall growth of the economy of about 2 to 2.5% per year. U.S. airlines spent billions of dollars improving their products on strong cash generation, most of which 
the airlines use a lot of which the airlines use to improve their balance sheets. Many airlines, not all, but many. They also did a lot of things that airlines tend to do in late business cycles. They gave out generous pay increases to labor groups, and they expanded headcount significantly. And there was cost growth in many area, many other areas of the businesses too. And costs grew faster than pricing, and this left airlines more vulnerable in the downturn. Airlines tried to outrun cost creep by generating more revenue from volume, not price, and they added supply faster than demand was growing, and that always ends badly for any business. But look, COVID was bad luck, and we all know that, and I think investors generally appreciate that. Demand turned off like a spigot on March 1st, and March is usually the time of year where airlines take a lot of bookings for summer travel, collecting cash in advance for trips that people take later. But for the first time ever, airlines were regularly every day booking net negative revenue for over a month, meaning they were refunding more tickets than they were selling. And that's still happening on some days. It's just that that's the, the pace of it is getting a little bit better. In July, I estimate that airlines are going to be burning about $200 million of cash per day in aggregate from refunds, debt payments, and other operating costs with their revenues down about 90% from last year. About at least half of the operating costs for an airline are fixed, which means even if revenue goes down to zero, you're still paying half of your operating expenses every day. Costs like lease payments on your airports, the cost to own your airplanes, and minimum pay guarantees for labor. In late March, President Trump signed the CARES Act into law, which gave airlines up to $50 billion in cash, $20 billion of which, which, of which was considered a grant, which is the airline which doesn't have to be paid back, and it's money that the airlines are using to pay employees, and the other $30 billion of which is going to come in the form of loans for other things. That may not be enough. These grants forced the airlines not to lay anyone off until October 1st, but many airlines have already sent out letters to their work groups warning of mass layoffs on that date, and there will be layoffs on that date. Out of about 550,000 U.S. airline jobs, I think about 100,000 of them at least will go away because of this pandemic permanently. A lot of job losses will be done through voluntary early retirements rather than layoffs, which the industry refers to as furloughs. Furloughing is a sloppy and inefficient way to shed headcount in the airline industry, but it is mandated because of the structure of airline labor agreements with unions. I want to look forward for a minute. There are different types of airlines. There are the so-called network airlines who run traditional hub-and-spoke models like American, Delta, and United. They're probably in the hardest spot because of the dearth of business travel. Business travelers probably make up about 30% of the volume of these network airlines, but probably over 50% of the revenue, and I believe at least 100% or more of all of the profits of these network airlines. I expect business travel will permanently change going forward, and these network airlines have built and geared their business models towards that business traveler, and they know that's going to be the new reality, so they face a choice. You shrink by some amount, say 25-35%, and focus serving on markets where you can price with some sort of edge, either through dominant market share or some product advantage, or gut your cost structure, try to simplify your product, and find revenue through low fares and compete just purely on size, sort of moving downstream, if you will. There is no easy answer here. Lower cost carriers have an inherent advantage in this backdrop due obviously to lower costs with less revenue to go around, but more of an orientation towards a domestic leisure traveler. But not all low-cost carriers are the same, and not all low-cost carriers generate their cost advantage the same way, and some have a greater advantage right now than others, and that will endure. 
Long-haul international trips are going to be very slow to come back, and many long-haul international business trips that take a toll on people's personal lives, they might not ever come back. Low-cost carriers have no exposure to this market, but they also lack scale and market dominance, and that too is a problem. Southwest Airlines, though, is a major exception, and they are by far the best-run airline that I've ever seen. I believe Southwest will emerge from this crisis stronger, and I can defend that opinion. But for now, the outlook is not improving, and it is scary. Airlines need to make long-term decisions about the size and shape of their companies, not knowing what the world looks like in six weeks. The airlines with the most visionary leadership will have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to grow if they can execute. But many other airlines will fail, and some already have. I've learned that a crisis makes a good airline better, but it usually makes a bad airline worse. And we're about to find out who's who. That's my six minutes. Thank you, Larry. That's awesome. Um, I feel sorry for that industry. Um, okay, our next speaker is uh, historian Patrick Allett from Emory. Uh, he's going to talk about the birth of the public health system in Victorian England. Go ahead, Patrick. Thank you very much, Larry. It's easy to feel nostalgic about Victorian Britain if you see it presented on PBS TV shows. The quickest way to lose that nostalgic feeling is to learn about illness and medicine in the 19th century. Victorian cities were especially dangerous. There was severe overcrowding, poor nutrition for most working people, no understanding of infection, and almost no capacity to react to epidemics. If you fell ill, it was nearly as dangerous to see the doctor as it was to not see the doctor. More than a third of all children born in London died before their first birthday. All that was bad enough. The arrival of cholera beginning in 1831 made it a lot worse. Cholera could take someone who was healthy at breakfast time and kill them before sunset. It was disfiguring and agonizingly painful. Cholera was new to Britain then, just as COVID-19 is new to us today. Historians of medicine and public health point to a dynamic 10-year period between about 1847 and 1857, as the years when things began to improve slightly. The first anesthetics were introduced by a surgeon named James Simpson, making surgery easier because the patient was no longer awake and writhing in pain. There were the years when Joseph Lister brought to England the ideas about antiseptics and disinfectants that Ignaz Semmelweis had developed in Vienna. And there were the years when Florence Nightingale began to transform nursing following her pioneering work in the Crimean War. Her advocacy helped turn nursing into a respectable job for young women. Perhaps most significant of all was a set of innovations in public health. In 1848, responding to a new cholera epidemic, Parliament passed the Public Health Act, which authorized cities to appoint medical officers in every district and to pay them one of these medical officers, Edwin Lancaster, became the medical officer in St. James's Parish, and that's the area bounded by Piccadilly Circus, Oxford Street, and Regent Street. If you've been to London, you're likely to know those places. At that time, it was particularly interesting because it included some of the richest and some of the poorest people in London. Lancaster's great innovation was to keep careful records from week to week of who was born, who died, and who was ill so that he could pinpoint the exact trouble spots. He then persuaded reluctant landlords that it was in their economic interest, even if humane considerations couldn't move them, to improve sanitation and survival. Over the course of a decade, he and his board instituted basic sanitation measures that halved the area's adult death rate. 
Lancaster loved statistics. He created what we would call the first longitudinal study of an area, which subsequently became standard practice in public health. And uh, you need to remember that this was a time when London was full of animals, horses for transport, cows for milk, pigs for meat, and chickens for eggs. So city markets, streets, and alleys were full of manure, swarming with flies in the summer, and always infested with rats. In his district, there were more than 200 cows and more than 1,000 horses. Lancaster also campaigned for death houses to be set up. We would call them morgues, because when someone died, the body usually stayed in the house for a week or more until all relatives could be gathered for the funeral. He also wanted compulsory post-mortems to help determine what was actually killing people. Two other public health heroes of that decade were William Budd and John Snow. They were enthusiasts for microscopes, which got a lot better in the 1830s and 40s because of improved lens grinding techniques. In the early 1850s, they studied the vomit of some cholera patients under their microscopes. They discovered a living organism present that was absent in the vomit of healthy people which led them to argue that cholera was caused by an actual organism too small to see with the naked eye. The prevailing theory until then had been that cholera was caused by a miasma or an evil cloud. They found the same minute organism in a contaminated water sample, but not in one that had been purified by filtration. In 1854, John Snow was working as the local doctor in St. James's Parish, where Lancaster also worked. He had the idea of drawing a street map of the district and placing a dot on it to show the location of each cholera victim. The map showed clearly that the deaths were clustered around a pump in Broad Street, which drew up water from an underground well. He recommended to the parish authority that they should prevent people from using the pump by removing its handle, because the water they were drawing was infecting them. He explained his reasoning, they agreed, and they removed the pump handle the next day. Sure enough, the number of cases dwindled, and there was no second wave of the disease. A sanitation engineer discovered that the well was adjacent to a large underground cesspool. This was all in the days before mains drainage in London and the leakage from the cesspool into the well had contaminated the water with cholera. Another important event was legislation of 1853 that made smallpox vaccinations compulsory, following another statistical study, this one by the Epidemiological Society. Parliament realized that the infringement of individual rights involved was more than offset by the collective benefit. And the outcome was a massive decline of smallpox cases, which until then had been a lethal disease in almost every generation, and one that disfigured even those who survived it. Smallpox and cholera were more lethal than COVID-19. Both diseases killed a much larger percentage of the people they infected. Our society is better equipped to investigate and remedy new diseases than ever before. But let us remember with gratitude the doctors and public health officials who responded to these earlier menaces systematically and dispassionately. Thanks very much. Thank you, Patrick. That was wonderful. Um, our next speaker is Michael Kahana. He's our last winner for the day. Uh, Michael is going to talk about memory. Go ahead, Michael. Thank you, Larry, for inviting me to speak on what happens next. 
I've been an avid listener over the last few months and have regularly shared all the interesting things that I've learned over Sunday dinner with my family. As a scholar of human memory and its neural basis, I'm not perhaps the most likely commentator. Nonetheless, there are two observations that I'd like to share with the group. Back in February, when COVID was quietly infiltrating the United States, many public health experts, including some at Penn, where I teach, implored us not to worry. Among my circle, most of us were not worried, but some became very alarmed. What underlies these individual differences in how we imagine our future? Can we attribute these differences to expertise, to intellect, maybe to generalized anxiety? Some would now suggest that political affiliation explains these differences. But we can recall Governor Cuomo saying regarding a shutdown, it's not going to happen. I won't do it. How is it that so many highly intelligent people, including health experts, could not imagine that what happened in China and Italy could happen here in the US? My colleague, Dan Schachter, a memory scientist at Harvard, has done extensive research showing that our ability to imagine the future draws on our memories of the past. His work has further shown that prediction and imagination involve similar brain processes as those involved in remembering. I can recall stories that my mother shared of her experience in the Holocaust, where relatives escaped from Poland to Hungary and they told my grandparents of the genocide taking place just a few hundred kilometers away. No one believed it would happen in Hungary because nothing like it had ever happened before. Yet, as we all know, the Holocaust did not spare Hungary's Jews. My mother implored my family to cancel our family trip to Disney World, and I'm glad that we did. The park shut down within the next couple of weeks. I think we all recognize that this present period will be seared in our memories for the rest of our lives. We'll have stories to tell our grandchildren, but I'm glad that at least so far, these are not nearly as bad as some of the stories I heard growing up about another era. Psychologists studying memory for extreme events have focused on so-called flashbulb memories, where an event is so surprising, so dramatic, that aspects of that experience, especially where one is, how one felt, appear to be recorded with incredible fidelity. Classic examples, Kennedy assassination, Challenger explosion, the attacks of 9-11. Memory theories suggest that COVID will be remembered differently from these exceptional yet punctate experiences. We record memories by linking the features of an event with the mental context in which the event occurred. Here by context, I'm referring to all the surrounding thoughts, feelings, ideas. These form a tapestry into which new experiences are sown. The present COVID context is unlike any we've experienced before, and this can lead our mind to play tricks on us. We have radically altered our routines for months, and our new routines do not resemble those of our pre-COVID lives. When context lacks variability, Hours go by very slowly, yet the weeks race by at breakneck speed. The time before COVID, at least for me, seems like another era. Last January feels like it was another century. So what happens next? If COVID disappears in 2021, will we return to our pre-COVID mindset? Will we succeed in joining the past and the future and somehow compartmentalize this period, filing it away in our remote memory? 
Or will the post-COVID world, assuming we get there, retain enough reminders of this period that we will never see things the way we did before? Either way, the most important thing is to stay healthy and safe. Even in these tough times, we can make some good memories, and likely those memories will be with us for a very long time to come. Thank you, Larry. Okay, Michael, that, we now begin the question and answer period, and I encourage all the other speakers to jump in whenever they want. Uh, I'm going to go in reverse order, so Michael, you're up first. Um, I think it's interesting that you chose the Holocaust as a way of expressing an imprint on um, the, the individual. Uh, our, my own family also uh, had that experience, and it, it, with my grandparents, you know, every dinner would include some lesson to be learned from the Holocaust. Do you think that's how it would apply here? Well, you often hear about children of the Depression. Um, is this, are we going to have children of COVID and use these as experiences to have face life lessons? I think maybe the Depression is a better, uh, is a better model. It's not a model that I have uh, a direct connection to, but uh, certainly people I know who lived through the Depression in the United States, I think something like that, complete change in, uh, in how they live their lives afterwards, and it, it, it changed how they invest, for example, uh, in mm -hmm. the future. Uh, there's a lot of research in the financial uh, literature on uh, depression babies and how they, uh, how they invest differently from those who didn't experience those events. Um, but yes, I think, it's, I, I think it's the kind of generational life-altering experience that will shape our outlook for all time. And you, you opened with an observation about worrying and that one group of your academic friends were not that concerned and other ones were deeply worried. Um, why do you think people started with different views and did they converge or are the same people who started out less worried are still not as worried? Have they changed positions? And you gave the example of uh, Governor Cuomo saying we're not going to shut down, but he changed his opinion and, and he's, he obviously has changed his path. Right, and I think some of the most remarkable examples of this are public health officials, uh, notable public health officials and experts who change their opinion quite quickly. Um, that, I think, is fascinating, right? What, was it something particular about the individual's experiences that determined uh, the degree to which they, uh, they worried about those, uh, those future events? Um, I think that my guess is that that's most likely the case. And in some cases, those, experience could have been, those differences could have been deeply in-ground in, in family stories and things that they heard from relatives that would determine the, their ability to imagine a future are unlike any that they personally have experienced, but they can still draw on memories for those experiences. I have a quick question. Is, is, uh, do, is one's capacity to dream and the, the extent of dreams that one have also affect your ability to imagine? It's not just memory, it seems to me, but also memories of dreams. Is that a, is that a possibility? Well, I think dreams... Uh, the research, well, we don't know a lot about dreams, but to the extent that we know things about dreams scientifically, they draw very heavily upon our memories. They involve uh, putting together the pieces of different memories that we have in, in interesting new ways. How exactly those pieces are put together are, are unclear, but a, an imagined or a remembered event becomes part of your memory much the way an actual lived event becomes part of your memory. Although dreams aren't limited to memories, I mean they can be um, you know more exotic and more you know beyond the scope of anything that you've ever experienced. 
they're, yes, but they're still built out of the building blocks of things that you have experienced for the most part. You also talked about um, behavior and norms, um, how you, once you start a new routine, initially it's quite shocking, but then over time it just becomes your way of life. Uh, each of us have changed our own norms and our own realities, and so this is the new normal. Um, how should we think about this going back to the old world? Will we, how does this affect us going forward? Well, I think that's really the big question about what happens next here, which is, are we going to somehow be able to switch back to our old routines sufficiently that this period will then sort of get filed away as this crazy period? We'll remember it, and things will remind us of it, but we'll be able to compartmentalize it. Or are there going to be so many changes in the way we live our lives, and we heard from some of your uh, uh, other callers about how I, I know certainly in my case, I'm not going to go to 10 conferences a year, get a, you know, you get invitations to speak in all these different cities all over the place, and you agree to go. Why, why would I do that? I can just get on, get on Zoom and, and Zoom into Germany or Japan or wherever I was invited to speak. Why do I have to put my family through the hardship of being away? So clearly, we'll change our routines in various ways. An interesting question, I'm a professor, I teach at the University of Pennsylvania, will we teach the same way? I recorded all my lectures the last half of this past semester. It took me a while to figure out how to get it right. Now I've got those lectures recorded. I'll be recording my lectures this year again for my classes. After that, am I ever going to want to stand up and regurgitate a lecture that's already recorded, or will I have the kids watch the lecture and then have interactive discussions with them? So we're going to do things differently, and that will shape uh, both our memories and our attitudes and everything. Okay. Moving on to Patrick Allett. Patrick, um, you described a process of figuring out public health, um, how to improve it, how to analyze it. What, to what extent was this the role of the state, and what, to what extent it was the role of either individual entrepreneurs, the medical establishment, uh, philanthropic NGOs, if you will? Who were these people? Who funded them? Uh, it's, it was mainly a, an ingenious group of doctors who were able to persuade the politicians that they'd got the right way of going about it. Historically, there'd been a very strong association of disease with divine intervention. And this was really the first generation of, of people who said, let's completely leave aside all supernatural um, aspects of this, even if it might ultimately be a visitation from God, there are things that we can do. And so they were very hard-headed, and in fact they seemed very modern because they were interested in math and statistics, and they realized it was no good relying on anecdotal information. You've got to, have, you've got to gather systematic information. And what's so striking is that they were then able to prevail on the politicians to show them, look at the way in which the evidence we've gathered demonstrates the nature of the problem. One of the things that interested me particularly was that when I first heard about Jon Snow and the pump, I'd heard that he was this kind of radical individualist who defied the authorities to, uh, to chop the handle off the pump. But the reality of the story is the exact opposite of that. He went to the local parish councillors, the people who ran that district, and said, look, here's the information I found. Here's, here's, let me show you the way in which these cholera deaths correlate with what's going on around the well. To which their answer was, yes, we agree, and we'll do that. So it's a slightly less dramatic story, uh, but in, in a way it's a much more encouraging one because it's, it demonstrates the, the developing 
um, confidence in science and also the capacity of government to act rationally to counteract what until then it seemed like an insuperable problem. But the doctors themselves were um, a very, very ingenious lot, highly educated, ambitious. I guess the other great difference is that Britain then was a small enough world, or at least let's put it this way, the educated classes of Britain were a small enough group that they tended to know each other. So that people like Jon Snow uh, would know crucial members of Parliament to whom they could go and appeal. We live now in a far more anonymous world, which is far less face-to-face -face than that one. And, of course, that tends to make it easier for mistrust and doubt to arise. So, you know, when, in our current crisis, um, you know, we didn't really understand how COVID spreads. You know, I used to keep my Amazon packages out in the front stoop for three or four days before I would open them. Um, and so we still have confusion as to, you know, the process. Um, but then, you know, and science has uh, been questioning. We've had discussions on the call about the value of intubating patients versus oxygen and the, limitate, and the benefits of masks or not, uh, tracing or testing, et cetera. Um, I guess there's always uncertainty, and the question is how do you, how you deal with that and integrate it properly. Uh, agreed. And I think the great difference is that now we keep, we keep very careful records of everything we do. One of the things that's so alarming about studying the early history of public health is how hit and miss it was that there might be somebody writing in Germany who, who's, who an English reader might happen to notice, and eventually there might happen to be a translation. But what you didn't have was, was kind of remorseless um, charting of effects of representative groups and the use of control groups, all the things which make scientific work more effective are done far, far better now than they were then. So, of course, it's true that we've still got plenty of uncertainty and that COVID, I mean, the history of COVID-19 so far demonstrates that we've gone down a learning curve and bit by bit we've put aside certain hypotheses which turned out to be untrue. But we're, we're, we've got far more resilience than our ancestors had, um, and the whole society is set up far better to be able to move towards an effective remedy than was the case then. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of the talk uh, a few weeks ago when Stuart Buck, one of our speakers, talked about the changes in the scientific process. He was mentioning that um, most scientific analysis had to go through peer-reviewed journals, but that during COVID that, that had been abandoned and that papers were being released immediately and then judged in the public uh, and in the public space. This seems, the story you tell, is more reminiscent of that experience where this wasn't a... Um, the handle story wasn't a peer-reviewed analysis. The guy went up and was able, to, in real time, to persuade the guys of actions. That's right. Yes, it, it took a long time for, for the p principles of peer review to catch on. And, of course, one of the things that's so dismaying is that a lot of doctors continue to deny the reality of the germ theory of disease, that even though... John Snow could see in the microscope this organism and say, that's what's causing the cholera. A lot of doctors found that hard to believe. They couldn't take seriously the idea that something that small could be so lethal. We're totally familiar with that idea now, but they weren't, and they had to overcome some skepticism. But right into the 1870s and 80s, you still find 
resistance to the idea that the germ theory of disease is even true. And the great work of people like Lister in England and Pasteur in France is to finally accumulate overwhelming evidence to show that that was right. And then for generations of subsequent scientists to say, what we've got to try to do is to come up with a way of subjecting all this to impartial judgment, to take it out of the realm of personalities, uh, specifically, particularly to take it out of the realm of politics, and just to subject it to prin scientific principles that we can all agree on. But of course, it's a process that's going on still today. We still can't yet quickly and reliably come to the right answer. And even in our own lifetimes, we've had some famous examples of scientific mistakes, which seemed uh, which seemed reasonable, but turned out to be wrong. I'm thinking of something like cold fusion back in about 1990, when some very reputable scientists thought that they'd induced a, a fusion reaction at room temperature, but it turned out they hadn't. Well, that would be the benefit of the peer review being unable to replicate the experiment. Exactly. All right, moving on to Jeff Shell. Jeff, you talked about um, cutting the cord and that, that that was going to have an effect on how you decide to employ capital. Uh, could you go into just a little bit from a big picture standpoint? Um, why are people cutting? How are they enjoying the streaming service? You've mentioned that you just started this new Peacock streaming services. How does that differ from television? Why are you excited about it? And how are you going to reallocate resources internally to take advantage of that change? Well, that's a lot of questions, Larry. I also, the previous speaker, <laughs> people had known, if people had known Jon Snow was a Targaryen, they may have believed him more than uh, they did at the time. <clears throat> so a uh, little Game of Thrones reference for, for some of you. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the answer is that people started to watch things probably a decade ago non-linearly, um, as opposed to linearly, meaning that they would watch things on demand or on their TBR or, or whatever, but for the vast majority of people, they, they still subscribe to a satellite or cable company and watch a bunch of channels in a linear fashion. What's happened during this process is the primary reason why you watch linear, whether it's sporting events that are live or new shows, have been replaced by an ease, an ease of watching and streaming, um, which for the people who can afford it is a much better consumer experience in accelerating that. So. So consumers always win in, in almost every market. They're going to win in this market, and ultimately the TV business is going to be much more uh, nonlinear than linear. And I think if you look at like a company like ours, um, we generate a lot of money from people who advertise, and so we decided to launch our streaming business with advertising um, versus having somebody pay, you know, six bucks a month, ten bucks a month, fifteen bucks a month to subscribe like they do for other services. I think we were lucky that obviously going into the pandemic um, when people had much more economic constraints that that was a better model. And uh, thus far we've seen a pretty, you know, in the last couple of months, first on Comcast and then the last couple of days for the whole country, we've seen a lot of people who are uh, choosing to watch in that way even though they have other options, uh, probably for the most part for economic reasons. So I don't know if that literally answered all your questions, but, but uh, tell me if there's anything I didn't hit and I'll hit. How do you reallocate uh, capital internally? What does that mean to put more resources behind Peacock streaming than it is behind TV? Like, what do they do differently? What 
do you make different content? Do you make different technology? Like, what does that mean? You're reallocating? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so there's two two reallocations. One of which is obviously people, right? You have a bunch of people who have who are programming services that there's a there's a different way of running a nonlinear service. But the biggest impact is programming. So, in the old days, as in a couple of years ago, you would have a, a nine o'clock uh, slot on NBC, for example, where you'd say. I need a new show because the show there is not working and you would do a bunch of pilots and you'd look at them and then you, you, and then you'd contract one and you, and you'd program that show at nine o'clock. And people did that across each of our linear networks because you wanted new shows for advertisers in the nonlinear world. What happens is when Netflix says yes to a show, there's no time period. There's no slot you're trying to fill. They're just putting the show up on, on the, uh, on the, on the service and judging it by how many people it's attracting and how many people it's retaining. And I think that's a different way. What you what you probably then do is you invest more in fewer shows, uh, much more impactful, much more targeted to a specific demographic, and less trying to find reach and 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 broadness to try to drive advertisers. So it's a complete shift in the type of programs you're doing, and also probably a shift from people who are, you know, programming time periods to people who are just generally trying to target shows for a specific demographic that's going to drive your service. How big a competitor is Netflix going to be to you? I think I, I think Netflix is 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 a is a juggernaut. I think they've changed. I think once in a while everybody comes around that changes the entire industry, and that there's no question Netflix has changed the entire TV business. Um, they are uh, they are reaching in the U.S. probably a critical mass, where the only way they're going to be able to grow is by getting people to stop sharing passwords, and that's a a harder thing to do, but it's a big world, and Netflix is a brand that is global, and they're they're growing pretty strongly internationally. There's no question they are a competitor of ours. They don't sell advertising on their service, and they don't thus far have sports, so they're a competitor really in the premium entertainment space, which is only a small section of our business. But there's no question they've changed that whole business, and I probably would guess someday they're going to have sports, and uh, someday either they or somebody else is going to have an advertising. Service and so ultimately that model will compete with everything we do on the TV side. You mentioned you had thousands of employees showing up uh, at your Rock Center site. Um, Michael Kahana was suggesting that you know the idea of going to a conference seems like he's never doing that again. Um, and you've mentioned the risks associated with going in public transport and getting in an elevator and and doing everything you can in New York. What is that? Are you, are you guys successful? Are you guys productive right now, not meeting at Rock Center? And if so, do you think that this limited work environment is the future, or do you think as soon as there's a vaccine, uh, you're going to get packed on those trains and head right back up to Rock Center? So I'll give you the, re- the current reality and then my, my opinion. So the current reality is there are certain things you just can't do remotely. So in the production area, for example, sound and color are two things that are hard to do because of latency and and, and just the sheer amount of data. So when you're finishing up a show and you're trying to get your sound to, 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 to be perfect with the, with the video, or you're trying to get the color to, from scene to scene to match, that's a very difficult thing to do. Or when you're reporting the news or when you're you know, getting your signal up in the air. So there's certain things that we have people coming in 30 Rock to do today that you just can't do remotely. So for me personally, I'm now going in the office one day a week. I was going to New York, by the way, a bunch, and. Uh, your your hypocritical governor, governor who complained about Rhode Island quarantining is now quarantining me, so I can't go to New York now 
without a 14-day quarantine, which obviously is impractical. But I, I was before that going to New York kind of once every couple of weeks, and I'm still going to the office here. And I will tell you that, and I don't, and it's probably a, a question more psychologically for some of the other people you've had on your, on your um, calls, but I can sit at home and do a video call for video calls for eight hours, or I can go to the office where I'm largely alone and do video calls for eight hours. And for some reason, I'm less tired in the second case. I find being in an office environment is different than, than, than being at home. And I also find in the few meetings that I'm actually having in person, there's something about being in person that you can't quantify. There's body language, there's cues, there's things that don't happen on Zoom. And so I'm of the opinion that, that this has only been three months, that someday the world's going to go largely back to where it was before. And yeah, sure, I may not go to a conference. I, I agree with Michael that, you know, that, that, that travel that's on the edge, that, you know, the risk benefit is, is there may, may fall by the wayside. But I think largely, I predict we're on crowded trains someday and still doing things the way we did back in the old days once things subside. But it's going to be a while. Um, I'm not surprised that your life isn't that different in terms of being on all these calls and making all these decisions. But for the, the youngest staff who are actually trained through a, an apprenticeship program where they watch their senior employees operate in meetings, operate in, in how they write and conduct themselves, are they the big losers here? Is this a generation of employees who are lost? I think, the, I, I, think I totally agree with that. I think if you're somebody who has ambition and uh, – and you're going to do your job, but also walk down the hall and uh, and you know look for something else to do. That is hard to do in the environment that we're in right now. And I think it's going to be now. It's hard to say a whole generation. It's only been a couple months. We'll see what happens. I think the big winners, though, however, Larry. I know you you want positivity, so I'm going to give you a positive here. The big winners are uh, certain elements of society, like single parents. You know, whereas we didn't have the tools to let somebody who didn't have childcare do some of the jobs at our company. Now we can say to somebody, okay, you can only come in the office two days a week and you need to care for your kid or you need to care for a sick parent. I think the flexibility of these tools will allow us to hire employees that have a harder time doing the traditional work model or even hire employees in other cities that can't relocate. And I think that's going to be ultimately good for society and good for our business. Okay. Hunter, you're up next. Hunter, um, I want to talk about uh, a couple of things that Jeff just mentioned about air travel. Um, business trips are way down. You suggested that it may not be coming back, um, and, but that is the key to profit. It's more than 100% of profitability for Delta, American, and United. How should we think about business travel uh, in the context of the previous model, and then how does it play going forward? Yeah, and to be clear, that, that comment on the 100% of profitability, that's my own estimate. I feel pretty good about that, but um, the airlines themselves haven't disclosed that, but I feel pretty comfortable with that estimate. And that's not just from the, the, the higher fares they extract from business travelers, too, but it's also from sort of ancillary things like change fees. You know, most change fees are paid by business travelers. It's very expensive. Uh, about one out of four business trips involve a change fee. That's a very, very expensive. Um, billions of dollars per year in high-margin revenue that goes away. Um, there's also the the money they get from these uh, co-branded credit card programs. You know, most of the people that have a, a Delta SkyMiles American Express card are business travelers, and you know, Delta generates about two to three billion dollars per year uh, revenue out of a forty-five billion dollar base from that, and that's very high margin too. That probably gets cut in half uh, because people just don't need those cards anymore. 
so there, there's multiple elements uh, attached to that comment about business travel being so lucrative, and it's not just about the fares. In, in terms of you know what happens with these business trips, yeah, I do think that about one in four of them, 25% say, will go away. Uh, th- those business trips where you're on the road for for three days and you're wearing yourself down, and particularly in a you know a time zone change, you just they don't really need to happen anymore. And and I agree, Jeff, that the, there is a value to having face-to-face meetings and body language. And I do agree that by and large society will get back to normal and it's going to take some time, but there is going to be some element of, of long haul trips that you just don't need to take anymore. Um, you know, there's, it's not necessarily a coronavirus comment. You're not going to be necessarily three years from now being scared of, of being stranded in Madrid and, and not get back home because of, you know, quarantine rules or something like that. Put that aside. It's just, you don't need to do that. And it's interesting, I'll just add this too, that the CEO of Delta himself a couple weeks ago said, you know, there's probably some element of these business trips that were just not productive. You know, people were away from their families and they didn't really need to happen. And there was, he said, you know, 25%, I might argue with that, these unproductive business trips that were discretionary around the margin, they can be replicated very easily through meetings, you know, through Zoom calls or whatever. And, and, and that's, that's probably the stuff that goes away and just doesn't come back. Can I, can I challenge that just, just for the sake of argument? It, it does seem to me that um, um, you know, while there, there is going to be some effect to it, I wonder if there isn't also a positive effect, which is the d- distribution of folks out of cities. I mean, that, that the, the, the fear of being on planes at this point is irrational. Uh, I've been on a few planes uh, over the course of this. The airports are delightfully empty. But uh, I don't feel at all risk on those planes at this point, especially wearing a mask. Um, and but but what is more at risk is the sense of personal safety living in cities where there's been so much rioting and it just hasn't tamped down yet. We still are having rioting this weekend in Chicago, and I wonder if the effect of that doesn't also drive some of the air travel, which is people leaving cities and living in other areas, and then traveling traveling sporadically into the city for meetings. You know, um, whether they live in another state or not, and they have to jump on a plane or they're just you know driving in. I wonder if we're not going to travel more as a result of this um, COVID and the distribution of people out of cities, mm. that the impact is greater on real estate, commercial real estate, as opposed to airlines over the long time term. No, that's, that's right. It, it's hard to know how much of the, the impact is, is just, you know, the economic pain as well. Like you mentioned, you know, Brazil is 15% of, of the park of tourists. I mean, you know, the Brazilian currency is, has been pounded. And, you know, even without coronavirus, I'm sure the Brazilian traffic to theme parks would be probably uh, hurting. So, you know, there's a lot of cause and effect arguments to be made here. I, I, I do agree that there, you know, the social unrest is, is certainly, I think, diminishing people's desire to travel to big cities, places like Minneapolis, things like that. I, I would agree that's not helping either. You, you always see uh, bookings, air travel bookings respond to things like that, whether it's a, a terrorist event or, or some sort of unrest. There is some sort of temporary booking impact. We've seen that in the past. Uh, and in terms of how the population is going to be sort of you know, leaving major metro areas and, and, and more to the suburbs, it does make accessing an airport potentially a little bit more difficult. If that airport is located downtown, it adds time to the travel agenda. Uh, potentially. I don't think it has much of an impact on, on the non-discretionary business trips or even the leisure trips, but it's that you know discretionary business trip. That I, I, maybe, maybe it's not 25%, maybe it's 15 to 20%. There is going to be some permanent destruction uh, in, in business travel and relocating out of metro areas, I don't think necessarily changes that too much in terms of the willingness or the need to take that trip in the first place, from a business traveler's perspective at least. 
So there was a surprise. We, no one expected this COVID, as you mentioned. Um, and there's winners and losers. And one of the big losers is the airline industry, generically speaking. Um, there are equity holders. There's labor. Uh, there are the passengers. There's frequent flyer miles. There's all sorts of liabilities and equity claims against these enterprises. Um, are you surprised that we went with a $20 billion grant? Is there something special about airlines that we experienced like with 9-11 that suggested that they deserve special compensation? Why weren't the equity holders trounced? Why did we want to preserve these labor jobs? Is that just pure politics? Um, what's so special about the airlines where we're not thinking about this in the context of, you know, Internet providers, for example? Yeah, no, it, it's a good question. I mean, you know, there's this, um, first of all, the, the reason why this got passed was because the, the airline management teams and the labor unions were uh, lobbying together. Um, and there was a left-wing, right-wing, sort of Democrat-Republican, I should say, um, sort of coalescence on, on the value of this program. And it was well thought out. I think the, the, the payroll support program, or PSP as they call it, is working as intended. It's preventing the airlines from making such rash decisions. Um, and I think there, there was this sort of bipartisan element to it because they had labor support and management support. You know, after 9-11, there were grants too, but not many of them. And it wasn't enough to avoid bankruptcies. Um, U.S. Airways got a grant. They filed for bankruptcy soon after. Delta Northwest got, got grants. They all filed. United filed nine months after getting grants. All these guys filed after getting grants after 9-11. And in the global financial crisis in 08 09, which was uh, devastating for the airline industry, there was no grants given. And... Mm-hmm. You know, they, they pulled themselves up from their own bootstraps. They consolidated. They found product efficiencies. They did a lot of really good things. And it was painful for a few years, but they were really good investments in 2012 through 2014 because of the global financial crisis and the lack of grants. And right now, these grants, you know, while they're keeping these, you know, a lot of airlines, you know, in business, they're creating long-term devastating consequences for the equity holders. And it's going to hurt. They're going to be these zombie companies that did not respond fast enough and take the cuts deep enough that they need to be successful on the other side of it. So it feels good to get this quote-unquote free money and this $20 billion of grants. There will be consequences. If there's a democratic sweep in November, I think you're going to see regulators re-regulate this industry in ways that, you know, people are probably... It sounds great for you as a consumer. Like they're probably going to cap bag fees, cap change fees, potentially eliminate seat assignment fees, all these things. But these airlines take these these profits and they reinvest them back into business. And they've got cleaner airports and nicer planes because of it. And you're going to see the potential quality of air service go down as a function of these grants indirectly. You know, there's a lot of long-term consequences from these types of things. And these grants, you know, they worked because they had, so like I said, bipartisan support, but there will be consequences for these airlines taking this money at some point. Even though it may just seem like a grant that's free sort of helicopter money, they will pay for it in some form one way or another in the next couple of years. Did they have to give equity to the government? Yeah, they already did. They gave them warrants. The government was entitled to warrants, which are basically the option to buy stock at a low price as a function of the grants um, and potentially as a function of the loans. So there was some shareholder dilution that occurred um, because of the, the grants, and there will be incremental or more shareholder dilution that occurs if they decide to take the loan. And only American Airlines so far, the major U.S. airlines, has said definitively that they will take the loan. Uh, but that has not happened yet, and they have until September 30th to decide. So there will be some dilution, probably in the magnitude of maybe 10 to 20 percent. When I when I think about the U.S. airline industry, we have an oligopoly with three big players: Delta, American, United. 
And then you've got uh, other marginal players. And the way you oligopolies usually work is uh, they don't increase supply, um, they raise prices, and then they allow upstarts to come into their fields and then put, trying to beat them back. I'm thinking of Jeff Blue here going in and then mm-hmm. bothering and harassing some of the majors from time to time in certain spaces. Um, but the requirement for a successful oligopoly is a constraint on supply. But now that there's been this massive demand reduction, uh, supply is almost infinite relative to the demand. Does that mean that there's going to be no ability to profit from these supply constraints in the system? Oh, yeah. And, and even though there's been mass consolidation in the industry over the last 10 years, and, you know, you know, you look at the stats at a high level and you say, gee, right now that, you know, pre-COVID, say the top four U.S. airlines generated 85% of capacity. You know, 10 years prior, it was only about 55%. But I can tell you that that has not had a diminished impact on competitiveness. Pricing still basically goes down every year. The major metro areas, the top, there's about 450 airports in this country. The top 50 of them drive 75% of the revenue. And competition in those major airports, major metro areas, is as tough as it's ever been. So what really happened was you saw places like Asheville, North Carolina, you know, and, and Jacksonville sort of lose some service, but places like New York, Chicago, where the vast majority of the revenue exists, are more competitive than they've ever been. So there's no uh, consolidation has not diminished the competition in the airline industry. Uh, the market share statistics are very, very misleading. You have to look at it where the revenue and the earnings are generated. It's more competitive than it's ever been. So, you know, this industry, while there's a lot more supply than there is demand, on the way back out of it, we saw, just I mentioned in my prepared remarks, there was about a six-week period where it looked like things were kind of getting back. Airlines immediately just doused it with capacity, and they smothered it out. And within weeks, they had basically reaccelerated their cash burn. That's going to happen again. You know, the fungibility of these assets, the ease of what you can move around these capital assets is like any other industry in the world, and it promotes insane competition, and they will find a way to compete ruthlessly on the other side of this within weeks of when anything starts to get better again. And we've been thinking mostly domestic, but how do we think about it in the context of international? You made a quick comment that international travel is not, is not coming back anytime soon. Um, can they, but can you imagine a world where American just says, you know, look, I got all this excess supply. Maybe I should get into Latin America in a bigger way. Or um, how does that affect all the emerging markets and international small country international travel, et cetera? Well, I think it actually goes the other way. I think you're going to see, uh, as bad as it is here in the U.S., it's also a function of the fact that our, our you know, our, our, we've done a bad job containing the coronavirus. Uh, and, and I think, as, as Jeff mentioned, too, there's just been inconsistent information and confusion within travelers. Um, that being said, I think that's making the domestic environment worse than it otherwise would be. I think you will see major international airlines like Delta, United, American go back to a heavier domestic bent. And I think what you will see is them still have service to faraway places, but I think they'll rely on what's called code share partners. You know, so an airline will have a code share partnership where you book a ticket on Delta.com and you step into the airplane, you're actually on a Virgin Atlantic flight. You'll see a lot more of that with the international service. I think the network airlines will shed a lot of their wide-body aircraft, the 777s, the 787s, things of that, focus more on serving the domestic market, which tends to drive higher profitability, and they will cut places to emerging marketplaces, places they just don't need to serve because they were there because it was a volume play. I don't think they're going to be there. I think you'll see service scale back dramatically 
to those emerging market parts of the world and for the international parts that are non-emerging market places like London and Paris, that's where you'll see more sort of partnerships, like I said. But I think the, the way the airlines deploy aircraft, I think you'll see them focus far more on the domestic market over the next five to ten years than they have been in the past. Thanks, Hunter. Howard, we're back to you. Um, you know, you've, your focus initially was sort of like making sure the deal closes. You, you took the perspective of the, of the uh, seller. But if I asked you to defend me and I was the buyer and I wanted you to get me out of this, out of this contract, which now looks terribly uneconomic, what were the things that you would try to do to make sure that the deal didn't close? We pick up with some of the points that I touched on towards the end of my presentation, which is, you know, first a, a focus on the technical writing of the various clauses of, you know, what exactly is and is not a material adverse change under your particular set of agreements. Second thing, and this is a big area, um, would be the interim operating covenant, whether or not you can comply with that. Um, and the fact that it gets pretty hard under some of these clauses as things drag on, right, in order to, uh, to ensure your compliance with it. Uh, I think there's then a procedural format that's required of making sure that uh, you continue to use your reasonable best efforts to get the deal done. And if you're thinking that you might have to litigate the case, right, you've got to be prepared, you know, for uh, the sort of fight that we talked about, you know, that, uh, that buyer's remorse is not a way out. And one of the evidences of buyer's remorse is jumping to the fact that you should get a price renegotiation, right, and not just an outright termination. So I think you've got a set of things that you've got to be looking at, that you've got to be evaluating, and you've got to be carefully engaged with your seller to understand exactly what's happening at their business and what they're doing and what they're not doing, right, in response to the crisis. And do you imagine that, I imagine after 9-11 that the MAC clause was redefined to incorporate uh, a, a terrorist or warlike act. Um, do you expect MAC clauses to be better written in the future to incorporate events like COVID? Well, they already are, right? You're seeing it specifically identified. There were many places where uh, you had already seen pandemic uh, exist because, uh, as most folks sort of when they think about it realize, uh, at least in a global M&A marketplace and airline industry, et cetera, this isn't the first, right, that people have seen. Um, so there was already awareness of it. But to the extent that you, you had deals that do not did not include that, you're obviously now having more if not all that do, going back to this negotiating leverage that we were talking about earlier, um, where if you have the right leverage, right, you know, it may be working the other way that, uh, you know, you may be getting um, COVID impacts, right, adjusted differently in an MAE clause so that, in fact, right, the buyer is not entirely at risk depending on the circumstances. So there are, you are seeing attempted carbacks in that when the leverage is right. One of my uh, listeners had a question which I sent to you about differences between types of buyers, private market buyers versus public market buyers. How are they treated differently? Well, ostensibly they're not. Um, but I do think, you know, um, that, that question sort of raises, uh, as it did during 2008, and like, you know, a question of, uh, of the way deals are structured and, uh, and how a private equity buyer sort of is different than a public company buyer, um, even though the, in some ways the contracts are not materially different. Uh, but what becomes hard with the private equity buyer is how you're going to enforce them closing the deal 
if the money's not there. So yeah. the public company, the real company, I'll call it, um, okay. its balance sheet can be at risk regardless of where the money is so that it has this huge balance sheet that it's subject to. The private equity player doesn't have the same balance sheet, right? It has what it's committed to the deal, and then it has its other financing. Uh, and that does create a difference in terms of the actual outcome in the real world. And it's sort of like um, where you have, when you're selling your house and one customer comes in with a mortgage contingency and the other one doesn't, is that the difference between the private and public uh, well, not entirely because, again, it's not an actual condition financing, even in the private equity deals. Uh, and there are a whole bunch of things that, you know, both pre-2008 and following 2008 got added in in order to make sure that the obligations in those deals were enhanced. But there, there, still, is, there still is a difference, right, that parties have to think about when um, you know, you're looking at a situation, you know, again, we, we use the example during my presentation of the situation where uh, the debt commitment letter by its terms has now expired. Right now, that's not an out on the deal, right, while you're litigating the fight. But the question is, where's the money going to come from? Mm-hmm. So you could you could, in theory, right, you know, go in and make your argument that the private equity buyer must close. And the private equity buyer does have an obligation to seek alternative financing. But practically, where is it coming from in the circumstance where somebody asserted there was a MAC, the deal's been through litigation, right, and now the parties are trying to, one party or the other, one party is trying to force the other to do the deal. Why do you think that uh, in your original statement about um, decline in M&A activity, why do you think it's down more in the U.S. than foreign, and why are the biggest deals down more than the smaller deals? So I actually think one of the reasons it may be down more in the U.S. right than foreign um, is, that, uh, is that I think that a lot of them were already down more than we were at the start of the year. I think that's one component of it. Um, I think, uh, you know, a, a second component of it is, it, you know, it's lasting here. Um, so, you know, in Asia, right, there's a lot that's back. It's not all back, but there's a lot back and a lot more than is back here. Uh, as far as the big versus small, um, I don't know that I have a good answer for it, but I do think that, you know, in terms of, trying to do a transformative deal in this environment, right, of trying to, you know, really reshape an industry, right, with the limitations that exist, right, in in how you go about putting a deal together at this point, right, between travel and diligence and uh, high stock prices and the, some of the issues we spoke about and the regulatory overlay, uh, I think some of the bigger players may be pausing before they go and hit those big, gigantic deals. Mm-hmm. Susan Saltstein, um, when you're called in to, the, to meet with the CEO of your clients and they're wondering what they should say to investors, um, how do you rec- what do you recommend to them in terms of guidance? Uh, well, Larry, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, de- it's going to depend, first of all, who the CEO and what, and what business they're in and what they've said before because – um, and, and this is, you know, this is, um, it, it is not only industry specific, but it's company specific. And so what, what we're going to understand better is, um, you know, taking a look at their business and how they feel about their, you know, about what's, what's, what's next, 
right? And if they have, um, you know, a good uh, basis to make reasonable judgments about what's to come in terms of earnings and guidance, um, that is supportable. Uh, and, you know, that, that really does depend on the, on, you know, on the business, on the industry, and on the management that's, that's, that's running those businesses. Not, it is not a one, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And if you take a look out there, I mean, that, that's, sort of, that's the, the proof of the pudding is, is how different uh, different issuers have, um, you know, have dealt with, with guidance questions. Um, you know, some, as I you said, mentioned, you mentioned the SEC 37 questions guidelines. And yeah. uh, one of the things that, you know, having worked, you know, in the world of, of some public statements, um, the financial reports started looking more and more like gobbledygook over time since you're doing your history lesson from 1933 to the present. By the time we got to the 1980s, 1990s, the financial statements, you know, didn't say very much. And the SEC kind of pushed back and asked for more plain English uh, in their descriptions uh, available to investors. Um, and it seemed to me, what, what was the objective of these 37 question guidelines? Was it that, look, I don't really care about what happened in the, in the first quarter. I really need you businesses to think about the most, you know, the most important issue in the room, which is how are you going to handle COVID and how it's going to affect your business. And here's a, sort of a little bit of a help uh, and a push to make sure that you do that. You know, I, I think, Larry, that's prob- that probably was the impetus for it, that, that viewpoint. But if you take a look at the questions which go into, you know, has there been a, li- a material liquidity deficient, uh, deficiency identified what course of action has the company taken to remedy it? Consider the requirement to disclose known trends and uncertainties as it relates to your ability uh, to service your debt or financial obligations, access the market, including commercial paper. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I think the problem is that it becomes so specific um, and, and, and a roadmap for plaintiffs who have used this trends and uncertainties, uh, which is item 303 of Reg SK language, to craft complaints that it's not really ultimately that helpful. And so, you know, because when you're, in, when you're in the driver's seat and you're deciding what to disclose and how to disclose it, you know, there are subjective judgments that get, get made. So maybe you don't want to consider, or it's not important for you to consider one of the 37 questions that the SEC has laid out. The problem is that becomes the standard. And, um, you know, I think that, and, and it has become the standard from a you know, speaking from a defense perspective, what we see in these complaints is that trends and uncertainties language filtering into all these complaints, and now you have this roadmap. So while that may be, a, you, know, you know, you might ascribe good intentions, you may not. Um, at the end of the day, I think it, 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 complicates, it complicates management at a time when, they, when, you know, they have enough to worry about. And I don't doubt that you're right, that there's going to be a lot of shareholder litigation related to surprises. Um, but will the judge or juries be sympathetic with management to the extent that, uh, like, what did you expect? Um, I remember that period. It, no one knew anything. Exactly. No, I think it's going to be tough for plaintiffs to get to get to make some progress here. I think courts aren't go, in the main are not going to have patience for claims that are based on failure to the, to predict the future or just getting it wrong, right? Which is not actionable. Um, you know, it, I think I think this may this could lead, if you wanted some optimistic view, it could lead to a, you know, perhaps a more realistic um, view of what the securities laws were meant to to protect and what they weren't. And you know, we are dealing with event-driven litigation that has 
been um, promulgated really by, you know, a species of plaintiff's firms that are, you know, tr- looking after the fees. And that's not really what they were intend to, intended to, um, to target. So I, I agree with you, Larry. I think, I think the courts are not going to have much patience, patience for that type of litigation going forward. And do you think that um, shareholders' securities litigation has jumped the shark and that this would maybe have peaked out on that? Or is this something that's embedded in our future? And if it's not, we'll, we'll get that bill that you think is unlikely to pass in some other future session? Yeah, I, I mean, partisan. I think, yeah, so just the, my, my view of the bill is that uh, it, it's not going to go in with this, you know, it's not going to go in with a securities litigation piece to it. Uh, you know, I, I did see a, I did see a, a, I did see a version that had one and now it doesn't. So I, I don't think that's going to be part of the legislation that's brought to the, to the Congress, you know, to the, to the Senate floor. Um, and I think we're going to have to, I think it's going to be through the courts that, you know, that continue to, to, to circumscribe how these complaints, um, you know, are, are drafted and dismissing them, um, you know, dismissing them on the face. But, you know, unfortunately it, it does, it is judge dependent, you know, and you're, it, you know, we can, we can all be happy to be in the seventh circuit or in the second circuit. Um, you know, there are other places that you may not wish to be. So um, that I think it, it is going to be dependent on where you are and who your judge is, and but but I but I think in the main judges will be sympathetic to corporate management. I mean, we just heard Jeff speak to the pressures on the business. I mean, it, it is a very sympathetic storyline. Yeah. Uh, moving to Richard. Richard, um, way back earlier in the call, we discussed uh, the fact that Illinois is in serious financial straits, um, and that the unfunded pension plan is the canary in the coal mine. Um, under our Illinois state constitution, you're not allowed to impair um, that pension plan at all. And you say that the federal government has a right and a duty to effectively undermine the Illinois state constitution. Uh, that turns into a political question. Um, and clearly the state employees are going to fight desperately to, to, to keep their pensions. How do you think this will play out? Well, I think sooner or later the pension plans will be modified simply because they can't be paid. Uh, they're so underfunded uh, in some areas. So, for example, the Chicago Police and Fire are both under 20% funded and will run out of money in five years or so. Um, that you know we're going to confront this, and at some point you simply can't pay uh, uh, the pensions at the level and in the way that they've been promised to date. So, just practicality drives the result, and sooner or later uh, we're going to deal with this, and uh, and we'll find a solution. So one of the things that you mentioned was that maybe we apply ERISA to these plans. And if you do apply ERISA, all these plans would be in violation and would have to be wound up. Um, And the way that ERISA does it is it looks at the present value of the future claims discounted at the risk-free rate, in which case these claims would be just mind-bogglingly large. Um, How do we... How are we going to do that? I mean, what does that even mean to wind it up? And to what extent, what does that even mean? Does that push them into immediate insolvency and then have to figure out versus the other debt claims? Well, you know, uh, 
I think ultimately these pensions can be modified in a way that makes them payable. You know, the um, there are a couple of features of our pension system that are so egregious that they need to be trimmed. You know, so for example, the age at which you can retire currently it's in some of the professions is in the mid 50s. Uh, that has to be increased dramatically. Um, the there ought to be a cap. You know, so for example, the six figure pensions in a system, you know, you want to make sure you take care of people and provide a basic pension before you pay exorbitant pensions. Um, the median household income in Illinois is something like $65,000. The idea that you have pensions uh, well in excess of the median household income that are being paid by the people of the state through their taxes just strikes me as a form of injustice. That and also, so, so I think capping the pensions, reducing um, the high pensions to a more moderate level, assuring that the lower pensions are all paid in full, uh, and then also eliminating the automatic ratchet to 3% every year. I think with those changes, um, the the pensions could become affordable and they would eliminate uh, you know, uh, most of the uh, unfunded liabilities. When do you, in your mind, when do you think this, uh, the rubber meets the road? When will this, uh, when will this happen? Uh, so it's unclear. Look, I think the 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 request by the Illinois state president uh, of Congress to bail out the pensions made this a national issue, uh, and so we've actually had conversations with. Um, when I say we, I, I mean folks that are involved in this, not at Kirkland, but uh, generally in the um, you know that are concerned about uh, pensions and and the state of Illinois generally have had conversations with senators uh, across the board about uh, whether or not this is the time to include, if there's a bailout, if there's a fourth round of bailouts, whether we include something like this to assist states with this massive liability to help them help themselves. Um, so, uh, you know, the triggering event, um, I, I think, will be a crisis. We are in a crisis now, obviously. Uh, if it isn't now, then, you know, then it's probably in a couple years when, um, you know, one of the city pensions run out of money and the city just doesn't have the money to pay it. Uh, and then you have really kind of a, uh, like, almost like a hurricane, a Katrina event, where if you have people that are relying on some money and they're not getting any payments at all, then it becomes a national problem, becomes a crisis, uh, and then people will address it. Um, if, you know, of course, with, as with many problems, this problem is more easy to address the sooner we deal with it. The longer we wait to deal with it, the worse it'll be, uh, both for the state and for the people who are the beneficiaries of these pensions. It really does push for anybody that's, that can see this train coming down the path is to deal with it sooner rather than later so that everybody's better off. Thank you. All right, this is the point of the show where I try to end on a note of optimism. So, uh, Michael Kahana, I'm going to start with you. Michael, what have uh, we missed in this crisis that we can look back and say that's you know, something to look forward to? Um, well, I think that's going to be personal for everyone. Certainly in my case, uh, being home with my family uh, for an extended period of time has brought tremendous joy, and I'll have those memories with me forever. In terms of looking to the positive, um, I, I can only speak as a scientist who runs a lab and a professor who teaches students. We have solved many difficult technical problems that we would have never had to solve nearly as quickly before COVID. And I think we'll reap the benefits from that for many years. Are you thinking technology like Zoom and, and stuff like that? Is that what you're talking about? 
We're figuring out, for example, how to do online uh, large-scale testing of human subjects with respect to trying to understand how memory works. Uh, that's something that we didn't have to do before. We could uh, bring people into the laboratory very easily. We can't. Um, we've uh, figured out how to engage with students remotely. Uh, we're still, there's no doubt that the personal experience is better in many ways, but there are other ways where um, we can deliver a very, very good product very efficiently and effectively in ways that we couldn't do it before. And nobody would have invested the, uh, the resources, the energy, uh, when faced with the thought that the students might, uh, you know, might not want to pay to go to college, the professors are thinking, well, you know, my job's at, at stake. I better figure out a really good way to deliver a high-quality product to my students, even if they have to be uh, uh, taking that product remotely for a period of time. But I don't think we'll ever be able to uh, undo those benefits. So that's a good thing. I think that we'll, we'll have those tools in our back pocket, as well as being able to uh, take our students to lunch in the, uh, uh, you know, in the outdoor cafe sitting uh, six feet apart from the other party or whatever. Uh, I, I think we'll figure out how to benefit both uh, from the challenges that we faced in COVID as well as, of course, hopefully, I, I certainly sincerely hope, come back to uh, return those activities that are, uh, that are making our lives, uh, that will make our lives better when we can do them again. Thanks, Michael. Patrick? I think one of the many benefits of being a historian is that it's the perfect antidote to nostalgia. The, you, the more you study history, the more grateful you feel not to live at any time in the past, and that if there's ever been a golden age, it's now. We're so much more resilient as a society. Uh, we've got very high standards. We expect to be able to find a vaccine and a cure for COVID, and we probably will. We've got the infrastructure to make it happen. So although it's, to many of us, vexing and anxious to be living through it, we can look with far more equanimity on our situation than our predecessors could in the Black Death or the Great Plague or the cholera epidemics of the 19th century. So my view is, although we've got serious concerns, they're much less serious than they would have been hundreds of years ago. Jeff Shell. Jeff, did you? Just line I'll skip ahead. Hunter, how about you? Hey, Larry. Um, yeah, in terms of you know a reason to be optimistic on, on air travel, first of all, um, there is no substitute good. Um, so I think uh, this is a will it come back, won't it come back, and if it does, the airlines will be the one doing it. You know, there's really no alternative here in the event that it does or does not. This isn't going to change, um, and they're going to be in a position to take advantage of it. And the second thing is really, I mean, the airline industry is, is not a good business, but um, because of that, they are constantly trying to fix things. And I always like to joke around that the airlines are actually at their worst when times are good and they're at their best when times are bad because they're just so used to complete chaos. They're a bunch of masochists and they are constantly in pain. So uh, there are very few industries that are, are better geared towards dealing with a crisis because they're always in crisis in the airline industry. And while this is a completely new crisis of, of extreme magnitude, um, th they'll probably be able to figure it out a way to get through it. And like I said, I mean, not everyone will. There'll be some airlines that certainly go away. Like I said, many already have. Uh, but this is an industry that has not been sitting on its laurels 
for any period of time here. So uh, they're used to pivoting, and they'll, they'll figure out a way to, to adapt to whatever that new type of air travel looks like whenever the things settle down. Okay. Hunter? Uh, Howard? Howard Allen? Yep. Uh, I'll give you two things. Um, one, um, most of the companies that we're familiar with and we've been talking about, right, they want to get their current spate of deals done. Not all, right, but most do and are taking a longer-term view on what these deals mean. Second, um, in what you know we might think of as uh, the modern age of M&A, which is 50 years now running, right, there have been multiple bus periods. And each and every time after those busts have ended, M&A has come back, and in many cases, most cases, come back stronger than ever. And I expect that that will be the next phase for M&A once we're done with this period. Susan? So, Larry, I think what this, what this shows is that um, the bureaucracy that was and is our court system was actually surprisingly flexible because the courts – um, in many jurisdictions, uh, including New York, were essentially closed. And when I mean closed, you couldn't even file electronically. But within a relatively short period of time, the courts opened up. And, um, you know, trials and document productions and witness interviews and depositions were all done remotely. And it worked well. And so I think if there's one positive that comes out of this, I think we will see, you know, a, a more open access to our court system because folks will be able to access those, you know, those judges in the courtrooms remotely. And I think that's a positive. Okay. Richard? Richard, you need to be on mute. Oh, thank you, Larry. I was. Uh, I would say this too shall pass. And the great thing about humans is our, our memory of, of painful things uh, fades faster than our memory of good things. And I think we'll look back on this period of time and remember things like our time with our families. Um, and the more painful aspects of it will fade. And, uh, and the reality is I do think we'll end up as a stronger society for all the turmoil and the challenges that we're going through. Uh, and in fact, maybe it'll be an opportunity for us to address some problems that have been really nagging the country. Great. Okay, well, that ends uh, this week's What Happens Next. Next week, we have Rick Banks back again as my co-host. We're going to cover the issues of race, education, and um, policing. Uh, if you're interested in setting up your friends, take a look at the, uh, the web link I've forwarded you. And with that, I say goodbye. I thank uh, my speakers for their participation and listeners always for listening in. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. You can disconnect now. Thank you and goodbye.